better now to talk again. Um, so I'd like to welcome you all back to the question and answer session. Uh, so our next, um, our next week's session will be on June 15, um, as Knud said, so that's on China's global reach as part of Gordon Campbell's memorial speaker, speaker series presented by Professor Gordon Gordon. Um, and any of the other future events are also listed on SACPA's website at www.sacpa.ca. So you can listen to the audio as well as postcard, uh, sorry, podcast if you have not been used to it. SACPA's uh, events before, like me, I should say. Um, and if you have any ideas and suggestions, you are welcome to place them in the suggestion box placed in the lobby there as well. And now to, mo uh, to uh, coming to this uh, question and answer session. So we have the microphone there, so uh, anyone can come forward and uh, place your questions. So please don't forget, today's uh, topic is Canada long a refugee heavens, a model for other countries. So our questions and answers will be based on that. So once again, I'd like to welcome Dr. Susan McEnroe back to the podium and answer your questions here. So, yeah, welcome back. I don't claim to be able to answer the questions, but it'll be fun listening to them. Hi, my, my name is Henning Mundel. Am I on? Yeah? Okay. And uh, <clears throat> I'm a, not a refugee to Canada, but a deferred refugee. I was a refugee at the end of World War II to Germany, and then we came as post-war immigrant in 51. Anyway, the climate was very different in terms of reception where we were. If you don't speak English, no, you're no good, and so on. My question, though, about Canada as, uh, as a model for other countries. Our son, who is an immigration officer with citizenship and immigration, he has recently been asked by Germany, actually, about input, especially about a sp private sponsorship. And you made reference to that, that we have that, and many other countries don't, and we assume it. But in 51, we were sponsored through the Canadian Lutheran World Relief. Then we paid them back uh, in the next year and a half for our fare and uh, to come to uh, ship and train. In terms of our private sponsorship to become a model for other countries, do you have any data that doesn't, has done an evaluation how the refugees fare that are privately sponsored versus the refugees that are government sponsored from the same uh, cohort, for example, the uh, Vietnamese refugees. At that time, the Canadian government opened up for a lot of private sponsorship. We formed a group. We got charitable status, society status. We sponsored. But how they fared one system versus the other, especially after that one year of uh, obligations uh, under the rules that we have. Well. I said I couldn't answer all the questions, and here I am starting out not answering the question. Um, the reality, as I read it, is this, that there's not been a lot of tracking of how well refugees fare in general. 
uh, in part because they come into the society and then start identifying no longer as refugees. Um, and that, that occurs in, in, in a quite common way. So there's not a lot of tracking of them. We don't have data to track refugees very well, uh, particularly after the first couple of years. Uh, so we don't, as far as I know, there's no comparative study of uh, privately sponsored refugees versus others. Um, that part of the difficulty for constructing su such a study, just briefly speaking methodologically, would be that many are partnerships, pu uh, public-private partnerships in sponsoring. So you wouldn't have necessarily two separate groups. So, so what I'm saying is I can't answer your question because we don't, uh, as far as I know, well, we don't have data on that. It's a very interesting study, though. So maybe a future graduate student, if there's one around here, could, uh, I have some past graduate students, but not future ones yet, um, maybe they could work on that. But it's very difficult to track people. Very difficult. Oops. Hello, my name is Karen Tui. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned the Convention of Stateless Persons. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, as well as why Canada is not involved? More questions I can't answer. This is getting tricky. Uh, it's a great question. The, the, the Convention on Stateless Persons was, uh, the UN Convention on, on Stateless Persons was signed by something like uh, uh, 90 countries in, in 1954. Uh, and a lot of those countries are countries you wouldn't think would support it, but there they were. And the reason, of course, that it was established is after the Second World War, there were a lot of people without a state, without a place to go. But just around the table at lunch right now, uh, Purina told us about uh, essentially a stateless person here in Lethbridge whose passport was taken away when he became a temporary foreign worker in Canada. And so all he had was his visa here and no passport, essentially no place to go because it didn't have any passport, didn't have any identity papers. So this notion of stateless people is not, it's not gone away after the Second World War. All kinds of people are in dire circumstances. You know, their homes are bombed, they're going, uh, going across the Mediterranean in leaky boats. They're, they're, it's a terrible situation. They're not exactly going to have their passports in their back pockets uh, or their birth certificates. So the notion of, ha not, of having incredible numbers of stateless persons is real. And why Canada isn't signed on to this, I do not know. But in 2016, I verified this if they're not signed on yet. 1954 was a long time ago. I don't know what the reason is. Maybe somebody here does. But thank you for the question, even if I can't answer it. Hi, Susan. Uh, my name is Graham, Graham uh, Greenlee. I have an easy question for you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the Syrian refugees are completely screened before they come in. Um, I just wonder how that is done. What, what exactly are they being screened for? You said it was easy. <laughs> um, they're screened in the sense that they're, they're looked at for you know, the usual nasty things. Um, and they're, they're families, for the most part, who have, who, um, so the presumption is that they're less dangerous than single men. Single men are dangerous, we all know that. Um, so, so, you know, I, I have no idea how they're screened because I think it's all top secret. Uh, maybe the first speaker's son would know more about it, but I don't know. So when you get an easy question, make sure it really is easy, Graham. 
uh, Trevor Page. Uh, I very much like your highlight of refugees are citizens in the making, but I think there is quite a bit of making still to be done. Most of my working career, I've been addressing the needs of refugees in various parts of Africa and Asia, uh, both in refugee camps, in the, the national level, and then at the international level, formulating policy on assistance to refugees at UN headquarters. Um, soon after I arrived in Lethbridge, I did a little research for a couple of pieces I wrote into what happens to refugees once they arrive in Canada and if there were gaps. I found that at the national level, the interface with the international level with the UN High Commission for Refugees was good. From the national to the provincial level was also fine. But it broke down at the provincial level. And here in the case of an influx of refugees we had several years ago from Sudan, or South Sudan as it now is, I found that there is absolutely no coordination at all between the cities to which refugees are allocated provincially and the needs of those cities in terms of skills. None whatsoever. There's no... Lethbridge doesn't say to Edmonton, actually, we're short of these skills, so with your refugees that you've got coming in, please allocate some of those to us. Um, the first thing refugees need when they arrive either in a first country of asylum or in the country in which they're settled are jobs. If they don't have the language, they're at an enormous disadvantage. So I'm hoping that we're going to do more in terms of training, of language training in refugee camps so that refugees have an easier time when they're settled. Um, a question to you on your 68%. I, I wonder if you're familiar with the research just published by Michael Donnelly at McGill because he covers, I think, that 68% problem, which is something that Canada does face, as you pointed out. That could get a lot worse as we face a much bigger influx. I mean, double, triple, quadruple from sub-Saharan Africa, and as Europe closes its doors further. Well, as usual, Trevor, you're, you're uh, answering some questions that I haven't seen the answers to. I do know, however, that the notion of immigration policy around the world that focuses on particular skills and tries to match immigrants with particular skills that are in demand has not worked out that well. The reason is two. There are many more reasons than two. But the reasons that I think of are, first of all, there's always a lag. So you say you have skills in high tech right now, 
and then Nortel goes out of business. And so the, the demand is not as great in two years as it is now. So it's very hard to skate where the puck will be in terms of skills. The other thing is that people coming in change their skills. They go to school, they change, they, they have different, uh, different views. So uh, what they will be when they, when they land in the job market. So that mismatch in immigration policy hasn't worked out very well in any part of the world. Uh, it, sometimes it does, but it hasn't worked out universally. So whether it work out for refugees and destinations, I don't know. What does work out for refugees, and this we do have strong evidence are, is networks. So part of the issue with um, a large community, for example, the Bhutanese refugees here, and maybe Purna could talk about this more than I, but the, the, they, they attract more refugees from the same community because they can help each other. They can help each other with language skills, finding jobs, all that kind of thing. And that seems to work with many refugee and immigrant communities. So on the match of skills with refugees, I'm a little bit dubious, but based on evidence with immigrants, so I don't know. But it's interesting what you found. Uh, I'm Mary Shillington. Thank you, Susan, for your interesting and humorous, at times, uh, uh, presentation. Uh, I'm a retired clinical social worker, and at one point I was working with the college in the ESL program before I was actually uh, did my master's. Uh, and the people that were coming in then, they were from some South American uh, countries and so on. Uh, if they came in with a, a, a skill, a technical skill like an engineer or even medical uh, people, they, uh, whether their English was passable or not, they, their uh, qualifications were not recognized. So my first question is, has that changed? Because when McKillop brought in uh, a family from, uh, hmm, wherever it was, uh, uh, Yugoslavia, I guess it was, uh, when the, the wife was uh, an engineer, and so she worked at uh, McCain's. Uh, and I don't know that she ever got to, to practice her, her engineering skills. So that's my first question. Uh, uh, my second thing is a comment. Um, <coughs> McKillop has brought in um, um, 17 of a family from Syria in stages. And, and the, the fact that there's so many of them together, they're all a family, extended family, uh, it's made a big difference to them. Uh, and people in the community, in an ecumenical uh, approach we did, uh, they've, the men, a couple of the men are already working out at, uh, at Halal. Uh, and so people are supporting each other and a Syrian from the States helped one of the family members to buy a house. So what you said about the support is very important and, and I, it's made a big difference for our, our current family. But the question is, are there changes now as far as educated people being able to use their skills that they came with? Uh, this is a very important question and one that I should have addressed with Trevor's, but, uh, but I didn't want to take time answering. But the, the notion of credentialing is a huge issue with immigrants and with, um, and with refugees. It's a huge issue. Many people come in with high levels of skills and they can't get credentialed. Uh, even if their English is very good. It's a huge issue, so that's why we have this phenomenon, which is real, to some extent it's exaggerated, but to some extent it's real, of doctors and lawyers and accountants and engineers driving taxis. And in major cities you see that. 
you know, working in fast food joints, driving taxis, and they're highly skilled because they can't break through that credentialing thing. I was a, par a party to, um, uh, I forget what, it, policy options. <laughs> anyway, maybe something I said. Um, anyway, I was a par party to a policy options panel at one time where we were asked, uh, it was a quite interesting thing, where we were asked with a panel of judges from different disciplines, but esteemed people, this group of prominent scholars were asked what we considered the number one policy issue coming down the pike. And then it was kind of vetted and the judges allocated points for all of the arguments we made. And the number one issue came out to be this credentialing issue, uh, that, that we bring in top quality people, we screen them for having education and capacity in an occupation to contribute to Canada, and then when they get here, they can't do what, they, what, they're, what we screen them for. So that is a huge issue, and it would apply probably in spades to refugees. And why do I say that? Because if somebody's in a refugee camp, they're not exactly using their skills, so, so, uh, because they frequently can't. Uh, they're traumatized often, uh, having gone through all kinds of violence and displacement, and so the notion of coming in and automatically, you know, using their skills would, would probably not happen. There, there needs to be a few steps in between. Um, but the credentialing issue is something that we have not yet cracked. We just haven't. And partly it's the government policy can't do it. We have, you know, licensing agencies for doctors and for dentists and everything else, and they require Canadian education. And they say, well, you have to have Canadian credentials in order to be credentialed, which takes a long time, takes money, and sometimes refugees can't do that. So they end up kind of out of the job market. So, so that is a, a huge issue, and I'm glad you raised it. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much, Susan, for bringing up this uh, fascinating subject that's uh, involving us all. Uh, this matter of uh, refugees. Um, as we talked about at the table, uh, we were very fortunate here in Lethbridge back in 50 years ago to have had the Vietnamese War going on um, in the Orient, um, the American-sponsored war, uh, to which many Americans didn't agree. And uh, we had a flood of, of refugees from universities in the United States of leading academics who um, formed the core of, uh, of our University of Lethbridge and uh, started it on a really positive note. Now that was a very selected group of people. Um, what we're faced with now, don't you think, is a different situation where we're going to have a growing number of refugees from around the world because of climate change and because of economic circumstances everywhere. And Canada has the resources, we have the space, and so far we've had the right attitude, I think, about welcoming them. Uh, but it isn't going to be without, without problems. Uh, it's going to cost a lot of money to educate these people and to get them into the system. And uh, it seems to me we're going to have to be prepared in the future to put up the money uh, out of our own pockets uh, to make that possible. How do you think that developing the attitude of generosity over and above just welcoming people can be developed in the country successfully 
so we can meet with that problem in the future. Wow. Um, it's a very important challenge, and uh, we, we never got into the issue of climate refugees, which I think will be a growing, a growing uh, concern as uh, you know, levels of seas rise and uh, there are more uh, climate events, uh, um, because climate change is not just global warming, it's also more dramatic events, including things that will affect us, tornadoes and and uh, various kinds of strange, uh, strange uh, meteorological events. So that hasn't been addressed at all, but your point is a very good one. I guess I'm no prescriber of these things, so I'm just gonna speculate. Now, first of all, I think you're absolutely right that we're going to have to gear up, and we, Canada has already geared up a lot more than other countries, including for our size, we've geared up in the past year geared up much more for Syrian refugees than our neighbor to the south, for example, or than other countries. Germany is an exception, of course. Germany has geared up too. But other countries are putting barbed wire up to prevent people from coming in. The, the issue of sharing resources is a huge one, and I think that it's something we will have to, as a rich country, because we are very rich, and, and many of us have, have, are willing to donate charitably and, and, and help and do what we can with time and money, I think we are going to have to gear up quite a bit to, to, to help the problem. The, the fact is, though, that it's not possible to solve all the refugee migration in the world because an awful lot of people are on the move. And with climate change refugees, there'll be even more on the move. So that means that we have to encourage international cooperation on this. No one country can do it by themselves, and no one set of people can. But the generosity of spirit that has been shown over the history of Canada but, uh, but with, uh, uh, as you mentioned 50 years ago, with accepting American war refugees, because I still think that the, the title American War, there's a book about the Vietnam War that's called American War. It still was an American war, the Vietnamese didn't start it. Um, so that notion of those refugees who were not called necessarily refugees, but that we welcomed into the country and their offspring who are now contributing to the country enormously as well. I think we have to look at those positive examples and say, look what we could do if we, if we retain that generosity of spirit. But to counter that, I think we've got to get on top of that 68% that are worried about integration. Because we, can, we like diversity, and we like how it works, and it gives us a benefit, really. But we have to be learned not to be suspicious of people that are different, because they're wonderful people. And, and they could contribute to our education and our difference in a profound way. So I think we've got to counter the negative as well as build the positive. But I agree with you, it's not gonna be easy. Uh, Ken Sears, and this is probably not a question, but a, a bit of information to uh, Trevor's points. Um, at least in Southern Alberta, with, and I'll speak of the Somali, Ethiopian, Horn of Africa refugees, because that's uh, central to the point I'm gonna make. Traditionally in Southern Alberta, one of the entry-level jobs has been packing plants, food processing. Now, um, we use Lakeside Packers as the prime example. For years, for decades, Lakeside Packers, you could watch the ethnic communities come and go through the workforce in that plant. Mm -hmm. Until the uh, Somalis entered into that position, and then the Somalis organized, the Somalis unionized, and suddenly there was more of a stable workforce there. So you, what you have is, uh, you also have the, if you look at Fort McMurray, 
a lot of young refugees working in Fort McMurray, young male refugees. Now you talk about credentialing and that's fine, but that's frankly an upper middle class concern. You relate to the fact that someone with a doctorate is driving a cab. It is more important that someone who has come out ahead of having his family killed and swam basically to Greece and finally made it to Canada is looking for a work. We'll find that work, but there has to be some government supports for that. There has to be a recognition that it's not merely housing and then you're on your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so is there any indication that you're seeing, let's say from the federal government, that they're beginning to recognize this and doing something more merely than housing and uh, English and French language lessons? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Um, I think the, the, the class issues extend you know, up and down because there are people with high credentials that end up doing low-skilled jobs because that's, what they, that's all they can get. The, the notion of job training and job uh, entry and all of that is a challenge for pretty well everyone, including Canadian-born young people right now, um, or people of any age for that matter. So the issue of, of how that's done, the, the answer I would give is badly. <laughs> so, so I think you're right. Um, there's a lot of encouragement to find work. You know, so there are disincentives to stay without work, in other words. It's, it's, like, it's like using a club rather than a carrot. If you stay out of work, we're going to not give you benefits. We're going to do something to you. But there's less of a, a, a positive incentive to find work and to, to integrate into work. So that, that's a question. And many of the kind of jobs you describe, whether it's in packing plants or fast food restaurants or all of that, are sort of gotten by happenstance. And some research that I did a couple of years ago and spoke to SACPA about was the Temporary Foreign Workers Program that was quite extensive, in, even in, in Lethbridge, um, for um, bringing in um, service workers, essentially. And that blocked channels for work for refugees of the kind you're describing and for immigrants and for young Canadians. And that argument was not heard by very many people until I started yelling and screaming about it from my research. And people said, oh, well, we didn't think of that. We thought that these people didn't want those jobs. Well, according to whom didn't they want those jobs? Temporary foreign workers were taking those jobs. And so that's changed a little bit. But that's an example of something that had to be booted out of the way in order to make room for refugees taking some of those jobs. So, so I think it's a complex picture. But policy sometimes, and I do a lot of policy advising, so I'm reluctant to say this, but policy sometimes is a barrier rather than, rather than a way to solve a problem. And that was one example of the temporary foreign workers. It was a barrier to a lot of people. Okay, we're going to have a last question. Um, Excuse me, Sherry Mandel. Um, on one of your graphs, you show that Australia per capita takes in more refugees. Did I get that right? Um, I, what I said was Australia is number one in the world for ethnic diversity. Oh, um, I spend at least four months every year in Australia, and uh, is everybody familiar with Christmas Island? the brutality that is going on with the refugees that are housed there. In a given year, there's many rapes, there's murders, there's fires. Um, 
if you are picked up in international water coming from Indonesia, and that's where the boats all come from, um, they are sent to Christmas Island, which is extremely overcrowded. They don't come onto the mainland. When Tony Abbott was the prime minister there, he went to Indonesia and bought all the old fishing boats that they were using um, and had them smashed. Um, many millions and millions of dollars, but I didn't realize diversity. My daughter uh, works at the University of Western Australia. She's the only white one in her department, but they all come in very, very educated. They're not the low-cost jobs. And the only other thing I have to say is we could have a change of government in two or three years. The whole policy of immigration and refugees can change at the whim of the election. Um, it can change overnight. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your time. Okay, my comment about Australia was not about their refugee policy at all. Um, uh, they've had some problems with, with that for sure, uh, partly because of their geographic position, as you said, their boatloads of people. Um, so so th that's not what I was saying. I was saying that Australia is the number one ethnically diverse country in the world, and um, so that can include native-born Australians and uh, people, refugees, immigrants, whatever, and Canada is second. So the United States is way down on the list. That was my point. Um, so we're more like Australia than we are like than we are like um, the, the the U.S. in that respect. And people don't know that, so I thought I would emphasize it. In terms of refugees, though, I just should mention this this um, example, and there have been others. Of uh, uh, I mentioned the notion of turning back refugees because of um, disability of some sort or health problems or something like that, denial. But there was also a boatload of people that came to uh, the west coast of Canada from China, and they were they were jailed uh, and turned back, uh, and that was uh, what three or four years ago. So the notion that we don't do that, uh, that we accept all refugees, not the case. We have similar problems to Australia, and that's only one example, but that, ha that happened, and there were women and children that were jailed and sent back. So um, I think that Australia does have problems with refugees, so do we, with refugee acceptance. Um, but the notion that was raised earlier is we can't solve all the problems in the world, nor can Australia. And, um, so I think we have to consider some kind of balance, but keep that generosity of spirit and that anti-racial bias thing. We've got to get rid of that. Um, and, and so I think there are some very positive signs, and most of my talk was happy talk, as I said, uh, I, with, with some negatives thrown in just to, for leavening to make sure that we didn't go away all thinking everything is rosy. But it is not darn bad in this country, so I think we should be very proud of ourselves. <laughs>